We're very kind because of traffic. The first year I worked here, almost 10 years ago, we had class. And I thought I'd never make it home. And plus, everybody in the class was like worried about cooking their Thanksgiving dinner. So I talked at that time, Father O'Reilly, I said, we can't have class the night before Thanksgiving anymore. That's how the origin, that's the history of your night off for that. And then December 8th, which is, you know, a beautiful holy day. See, you'll have time to be doing your assignments on those days off. That's how I look at it. Hi, Govinda. Hi, Jackie. You made it. Very good. Good. I'm just really getting started with some announcements. Good. But I was just making note, we only have three more classes. But that being said, seriously, you know, you have Thanksgiving break, and I know we all need a rest. We need Sabbath time. That's really important. And then Immaculate Conception, it is you're gaining time to work on your, those of you for credit, the book review, and then everybody has to do the final exam, right? Which tonight will give you the guide to doing the final exam, your evaluation of the Eucharistic liturgy. But the book review, should I be bold enough to ask, has anybody started it or attempted it yet? Yeah. Oh, good. Awesome. That's good to know. But I'm giving you till the end. You know, I know. I figured out how many papers I'll have to grade at the end of this semester. It's okay. You should give like a... 5% whatever, we turn in early. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so you, you're gaining, I always look at a night off from class as you're gaining, you're, the student is gaining time to, to put in some extra work. All right? All right. So let's see, what else do I have to say before we say a prayer? Um, I will talk more about particularly the um, final exam, because I know last week uh, there was a question at the end of class about it, and then somebody sent me an email. So um, hopefully by the end of tonight, uh, it'll make more sense as we look at the general instructions of what I want you to do. Uh, last week, when I was out in Huntington, um, I meant, and I had it with me, to um, recommend a book for you to write down for someday when you're looking for some good reading, Reclaiming Vatican II. It's brand new. Uh, Bishop uh, Barron is highly endorsing this book. It's written by somebody, I believe, who works for Word on Fire, actually, uh, Father Blake Britton. But um, I'm probably three quarters of the way through, maybe not, a little more than half, but it is um, I might even use it for a recommended reading next time. Um, but it really does give the reader a really good sense of Vatican II. We talked about it. Where does it come from? It didn't just come from nothing. It came from a good explanation of history. You know, good exploration and digging deep into history. But anyway, this is, this is uh, really good. I really um, highly recommend it for good reading. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention, uh, talking about reading, is we don't want your Kevin Irwin context and text to go to waste. 
you know, <laughs> even though it is pretty dense, you know, but um, there was the, I already mentioned that first chapter on tradition, all right, then the chapter on time. Now, the one thing, his chapters are very long, and as I mentioned last time, um, I'd like you to look at that uh, chapter on time if you haven't, but don't get lost in the details. I basically want you to get out of it what you need to get out of it. Uh, and remembering that his focus is liturgical theology. So as you're reading, that's what you want to look for. Something perhaps you didn't know before. And, you know, and I know, uh, and this is only my second read of this book, and the other one was his other edition, but very often I've got to look up stuff when I'm reading a book like this. But that's okay, because that's part of education when you look up, you know. So don't worry about that, but take out of it what you can, all right? So that's, that's what I want to say about it. Um, and then what I did actually uh, last week, I went through the index and I picked out sections on things we already talked about, like the liturgical calendar. So you might take that approach to it. Go to the index, look up calendar, and then go to some of the pages and see what he has to add to our very brief look at the calendar. Because remember, the liturgical year could be a whole course, right? Then the other thing is, as we're going to finish tonight, the Liturgy of the Hours, um, he's, he's got something on that. So you might just uh, take a look at the index and pick and choose what, you know, as supplementary reading, affirmation, etc. Make sense? Okay. Uh, so that, that, um, and then I'm going to get to some questions that some of you all had. But before we, uh, this is the notes from last week that I just want to finish talking about sacred time. The prayer that I'm using for tonight is on your next set of notes, but I pulled my copy so we can start with the prayer. Today is um, the memorial of St. Uh, Leo the Great from, I think, 4th century, something like that. Uh, so I just thought, you know, um, being very liturgical. He died 461. There you go. Fifth century. Oh, 440. There you go. So fifth century. Thank you. Nice? I know. I, I read that this morning, but I'm so bad at dates. <laughs> I'm, I'm not good at dates. But anyway, being liturgically minded. Um, sacred time and to to pray with pray with that so that's why um in this class i've been pulling from either the liturgy of the hours or more frequently from the collects at mass because they're they're pretty rich i think so um that's exactly what this is so as we come together all of us uh here present in this uh, sacred space, and there you all home in your domestic churches um, at home, joining us. Um, we forget about everything we left behind and everything that we will go back to when we focus 
as tired as we are, a little bit past midterm, almost to finals, that we um, enter into this uh, moment of, of learning. So let us pray. O God, who never allowed the gates of hell to prevail against your church, firmly founded on the apostolic rock, grant her, we pray, through the intercession of Pope St. Leo, she may stand firm in your truth and know the protection of lasting peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So, um, just before I continue with this, there was a couple of questions that I, I don't want to forget about, because uh, I take seriously, I love when you ask questions. Um, it's so great. Um, but somebody had asked the question when we were talking about uh, the electionary. Uh, we, um, I mentioned, you know, since the reform in uh, 1969, for Sundays, we have three-year cycle. For weekdays, we have one and two. I did a lot of research on the You asked it, right? I did a lot of research, you know, and there's no, as far as my research goes, the document that talks about the lecture, the introduction to the lectionary. And I have to tell, show you, I brought show and tell today, these books in this bag. And I wanted to bring my lectionaries because I own lectionaries um, and I wanted to bring them, but I couldn't carry them. But hopefully, maybe you all have a lectionary, even a study edition, you can buy study editions, soft covered. Um, but anyway, my point is that in the lectionary, there's an introduction, and it tells you all about it. And it does go into the three-year cycle and the, the two-year cycle, uh, the one year one and year two for the um, weekday. But it doesn't give you a reason why exactly. However, the whole point of the reorganization, if you will, the revision of the lectionary after the Second Vatican Council was to give us more of a sacred scripture because we had a one-year cycle prior to the council and very little from the Old Testament, if anything. All right? So the whole goal was to, to open up wide and expose the faithful to the richness of sacred scripture. So the three-year cycle was meant to give us readings, Matthew, uh, the synoptic gospels, right? So that's why Sundays has a three-year cycle. Now, the two-year weekly, which I said always confuses me, what are we in? But here's a little clue that I read about. Year one is used with odd years. You knew that, Bob. I didn't know that. And year two is even. So we're going into uh, 2022, which will be year two even. And that's easy to remember. All right? Now, the way the week, I even went through my weekday lectionary to be sure. But the way it's organized is that the gospels are the same throughout the seasons. Only the first reading changes. So 
The introduction tells us that in the course of three years, both with Sunday and the weekday, even though it's only a two-year cycle, we are, if you read the lectionary every single day, at the end of three years, you've read a major portion of the Bible. That's pretty awesome, right? I read the lecture. I've told you this, that I do the lectionary every single day. That's my prayer book first thing in the morning. And it's so lovely when you can just have it on your phone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you have it there, which you don't have to get, you know. Uh, the other thing is for people that like books, there's always Magnificat. You're all familiar with. But there's another thing I didn't know called Give Us This Day from Liturgical Press. They're a little different style, but exactly, they have exactly the same content. It's also third week among us. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. there's also Living with Christ. That's also very good. Okay, good. All right. These are the two I'm familiar with. And when I talk about the Liturgy of the Hours, you know, probably those of us who are praying it either have Christian prayer or the four volume set, or I have Divine Office on my phone, too. It's this way you can pray it anywhere you are. These two publications, I don't know about the um, others that were mentioned. They have a shortened form of morning and evening prayer. And what I've heard people say, like professionals that work in, the, in professional ministry in the church, that it's very time consuming to dedicate yourself to morning and evening prayer. So I know one woman that says this fits the bill for her, um, give us this day because she feels as if she's praying it. It may not be the whole thing, but the, the main elements are there. So it's an option for people, particularly in a parish, if you want to introduce people to at least the uh, morning prayer and evening prayer and the readings of mass. There are uh, things out there um, for, for people, all right? Um, the other question will, um, that came up, so anyway, Aldemar, there's no, that's just the way it is. It's like it is what it is. <laughs> but uh, so there's no, I, I, yeah, I think what I came up with is a reason why, pretty much. But the introduction to the lectionary didn't say it's this way because. Works for me, thank you. Okay, good. Paul. So just to clarify, I'm yes. sure I didn't misunderstand you. Yeah. On the two year cycle for the weekdays, mm -hmm. I believe you said the gospel would be the same both years. It's only the first yes. reading. Yeah. You. And I actually went to my le weekday lectionary to verify that. So if you look at year one and year two on the same. You're going to have the same month. gospel. And I basically went through the seasons. Yeah. And only the first reading changed. Dr. Reichstadt, prior to Vatican II, what did they do for daily mass? Or did they not even have daily mass? Well, prior to Vatican II, I remember being in grammar school and I went to daily mass. But it was all in Latin. The readings were all in Latin. Like, if you go to extraordinary form, the readings are in Latin. So if you don't know Latin, you don't have to translate it. No, if you don't have a book, you, you don't even know. And, the, you know. And, uh, and when we get into uh, December 1st, we're going to talk about ordinary and extraordinary form in the two documents. So we'll get into that. And the difference in the calendar is what bothers me, because they already celebrated Christ the King in the extraordinary form. They're on a whole. They're on the calendar prior to what we talked about last week. That that to me is the most upsetting thing. 
right? But anyway. With us, it's, it's the 34th Sunday, it's the last Sunday of the liturgical year. Now, I just wanted to say, yeah, I don't understand why they have to go on the old calendar. That doesn't yeah, make sense. Because they're, they're... That makes yeah, no sense. It does. But, but I just wanted to say, though, when I attend extraordinary yeah. masses, I can't think of one where, although it's true, the, the readings are in Latin, I can't think of one where the priest did not then, prior to the homily, read them again in English. Oh, really? Oh, they don't do that always. where I go. Yeah, oh, cool. They don't do it. And then he'll start talking about it. And then I'm saying, I'll say to myself, okay, that's it. But meantime, I've already read the reading for, you know, whatever. Right. Um, I have to admit, I'm go I used to go because I want to know and I want to understand it. But since Pope Francis's document, I haven't gone because I don't want to, I want to respect what he's saying. And I've really gone because I want to understand it. You know, uh, but anyway, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. All right. And anyway, another good question will came up, um, and it's related to what we're going to get to the second part of class tonight. Um, so maybe I should save your question, Paul, for the second part of class because it relates to the general instruction. Let's get through the liturgy of the hours. All right. Okay. Okay, I think that's all I wanted to say for now, for now. You know me though, not a woman, a few words. Okay, so last time, if you remember, last week when I was out in Huntington with some of those lovely people on the screen, it was very nice uh, to see you all in person, but we were talking about basically liturgy and time, right, remember? When we looked at the liturgical year, we looked at the sacredness of the day, the week, the seasons in particularly, and to um, that they really, to be in touch with all of that, we learn about who we are as the baptized. It's about identity, in my opinion, and I've read this in so many places. And uh, to know the liturgical year, Remember, the um, mysteries of Christ are unfolded for us throughout a year, throughout a day, throughout a day Sunday, throughout the week, you know. Um, a lot of people don't, just as an aside on that, a lot of people don't any longer get that connection of the week and the year. So I think I mentioned this, uh, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but the whole idea of Friday, um, like when I was growing up, we didn't eat meat on Friday, all right? And the reason for that, does anybody know why we didn't eat meat on Friday, every Friday of the year? The original reason was to support the fishermen. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I did well, not know that. They, they did it originally because the uh, people were eating meat and the people who were selling fish couldn't get, they couldn't sell their fish. So the original reason for it. But what about uh, a liturgical reason? No, there's no liturgical Yes, there reason. is. Okay, I hadn't heard that. All Friday. right. Good Friday? Yes, that every Friday is Good Friday. Just like every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Correct. Right? So people lost that connection. And that's why the church never said, well, you can eat meat on Friday. They took away the um, that it would be under the punishment of sin if you ate it. 
you know? So that's what the church, but technically, like here, I mean, Robert, correct me if I'm wrong, but you never get meat on a Friday here. No way. You know, and I have to admit that I really try. I'm polite if I go to like my son's house and they're having hamburgers, but really, I don't want to have it, but you know. So, but that's the reason that every Friday. So that's the point here that looking at liturgy and time, yes, we looked at that beautiful liturgical calendar, but we also need to look at the week that our quick Sunday, right? First day of the week. It's not the weekend, like everybody in the world thinks, the secular world is the weekend. No, this is the Lord's day. Okay, and these are the kind of things that when you're out there and you have the opportunity to plant seeds with young people, old people, parents, whoever, you want to plant a seed. It's the Lord's Day, and it's different, and it's unique. All right? It's a Christmas tree, not a holiday tree. <sighs> Correct. Yeah. And actually, everyone is definitely. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yes. And then, you know, we can get into a lot last week when we talked about the seasons, but Advent is just eclipsed for most. And that is worrisome, very worrisome, because the Advent is so rich and it had so much expectation and waiting and and waiting in joyful hope. But we, we just rush it and we're already into Christmas. So, I mean, that's, again, keep it in mind. And be patient with people, but when um, on the pastoral level, um, sometimes people don't understand, well, why aren't our churches decorated for Christmas when it's Advent? It's Advent, it's not Christmas. Exactly, exactly. And um, I can remember years ago, working in parishes, that people just didn't understand it, and it really warranted uh, an explanation. You know, well, why aren't we singing Christmas carols? Well, it's Advent. See, but these were really relatively recent changes when we go back 20 years, 30 years, because only since 1969 did we really revise that calendar of feasts and seasons to really bring back the original intention of the seasons. Um, so, So, again, tradition at its best. So anyway, when we're looking at the liturgy of the hours, we're looking again at sacred time, that all hours of the day are sacred. And that's a beautiful thing. I, I, you know, just every day to just think of when you open your eyes in the morning, um, that we're here because of God, you know, and that the hours ahead are sacred. And, and we've talked about this before, uh, like I think maybe in the first couple of weeks of class. The Liturgy of the Hours is considered liturgical prayer, even if you're praying it by yourself at home. It's not devotional. It's liturgy. And the, um, the I didn't bring it because I couldn't fit it in my bag, but the document on the Liturgy of the Hours in the liturgical documents tells us there's five hours, even though there's really more as Rob pointed out to me, and I checked my phone. But basically, morning prayer and evening prayer, then there's daytime prayer. But there's like mid-morning and mid-afternoon and all that. Um, Night prayer, and then the office of readings as well. 
all very beautiful. And I'm going to try to uh, break some of this open uh, for you as well. I, I was talking to Rob uh, earlier uh, in class, and I, I have it on my phone, Divine Office, and it has all of them. But the only time I really try to be faithful myself to morning and evening, but I love night prayer. I, that's just so beautiful. Um, and I just feel like I sleep better with it. But if, uh, the times when I've been on retreat, I'll do them all, which is really quite beautiful and powerful to just stop and do this prayer of the church. You know, it's like, you know, Probably the only people that do this, if you're in a monastery, if you're a monk, that your whole day revolves around this. I think that's great. And I, and I try to do some of these. I've tried to do this all of my life, really tried to, my adult life at least, to incorporate a lot of these things into my prayer life, to be praying with the church. But again, um, to understand this, we go again to Sacrosanctum Concilium. There's chapter four, the divine office, because you have to remember that this was revised. Everything was revised with, this, uh, with the Second Vatican Council um, that this document made the proposals, that this is what we need to do. And then after that, uh, in some cases it took several years, but everything was revised and the divine office being one of them. And just as a little note, it's under revision right now as well. Uh, the bishops, in fact, the United States bishops are voting on it in November whenever they have their meetings, which I'm not sure exactly when. Um, so um, if you it's were to next go- week. Is it next week? Okay, thanks. All right. Is it in person or online this year? It's in person. It's in person. All right. Well, we have to tune into your network. Sometimes it's fun to watch that, you know, to see how it all works. I, I kind of enjoy it, you know. Uh, so thank you for telling us, <laughs> Bill. <laughs> Thanks. But um, Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraph 84. By tradition, going back to early Christian times, See, it proves my point about the Second Vatican Council, right? The divine office is so arranged that the whole course of the day and nights is made holy by the praises of God. See, in the early church, as we remember from our brief run through the history of the liturgy, every minute was sacred to the early Christians. The whole day focused around this. And we have to be intentional about it, you know? And we have to remind ourselves because of the world we live in. But they were in a community and in a world, their world, where this, there was nothing more important. But, but we can do that. But we have to, it's intentional on our part. Um, and 80, paragraph 88 says, the purpose of the office is to sanctify the day. That's a wonderful way to start your day. You know, um, just so beautiful. And you know, morning prayer, uh, well, the next, let's look at the next paragraph first. Morning and evening prayer are the two hinges on which the daily office turns. But the whole idea of morning prayer 
the theme is the resurrection. You know, we woke up to another day, and we need to be grateful for that. You know, and and evening prayer, the tone is a little bit different. And night prayer, you know, we we actually pray for a peaceful death. You know, and yeah, but we 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 never know if we'll wake up the next day. And to go to that prayer, sleep in the peace of Christ, is just so powerful. And to pray for a peaceful death, it's just beautiful. But morning and evening basically are considered as the chief hours and they're celebrated as such. And then again, compline or night prayer is to be composed that it will be suitable to end the day. And that's why I just think it's uh, just powerful that we, if we're able to take the time to end the day that way before we close our eyes to sleep. And again, you know, with busy schedules and everything, I just think do the best you can with this, you know, on a personal level, you know. But as we'll see, the whole church is called to do this. And there are things that we can do pastorally, and I'll introduce you to a commentary uh, to help you with that in the future. Okay, um, yes. what, what website can uh, we go to, like, if we don't have the books? Say it again, Carlos. What's a good website um, to go to? Uh... Oh, you can get, you have a, if you have a phone, you can download an app called Divine Office. You go to the app store and just put in Divine Office. Okay? Or on your computer. But it's an app. I think it's a couple of dollars. Yeah, I'm grandfathered in where it doesn't cost me. Yeah, I think it was like $3. I forget. But it's really worth it to have it in my pocket all the time. Office of readings. I like to do office of readings because the second reading is usually from the church fathers. Yeah. You know, it's just... Yeah, and that's all on there. They have, like, for today, for example, they have, they tell you right away, St. Leo the Great, about today. So then there, there's a little introduction to the day. That memorial, and it gives a little bit about the life of uh, Saint Leo. Then there is the officer readings: morning, mid morning, midday, mid afternoon, evening, and night. But it's all there. It's great. Can also so get can also get I breviary, which is very very yeah, simple. Yeah, I have that too. That's yeah, really easy. It's really the same though, right? Um, it's well, it's not as it's it's not as involved. It's you know, it, it's got a, it actually it's, it's updated now and it's got a bunch of stuff in there, but it's got, you know, the liturgy of all the hours and it's got, uh, some other things, some explanations. So it's actually very, it's good to have it in your pocket on your phone yeah. because you can, you can refer to it anytime you want. Yeah. I think I had both of them at one time, but I preferred this one, but it's a matter of what you're comfortable with, Yeah. but try, try them, Carlos. So this way you have it, you know, it's, and it's also, it's lovely to have the book as well. But if you don't have, have time, I taught myself, I had the book, and then with the app, I figured it out. Right. And the nice thing, I had the single volume. Yeah. What's nice about the single volume, the readings from scripture are longer in the single volume as opposed to the four volume. I have both, and I kind of go back and forth, the four volumes, uh, the one volume, but I, I have to admit, mostly I use my phone because it's, I have it. It's convenient. It's convenient. Yeah. Yes. Not only. Yeah. Oh, sorry. All right. Hold on. Rob and then Anthony. They call it. 
So if you're if you're doing night prayer or uh, sorry evening prayer or morning prayer at your parish, uh, you know most of the people are using the apps. They're not you know they're not buying the books. They're not trying to go back and forth back and forth with the with the ribbons, which is extremely confusing even for us. Um, but if you want to use the books, there are resources on the web that will tell you like where to go on what day, you know, where all the, you know, for the four volume, the one volume. And also there's a very handy mathematical formula that if you don't know what week of the Psalter it is, you know, it's a multiple of four. So, um, you know, that's something else, but you know, it's always, I mean, doing evening prayer at the parish or morning prayer, everybody is using this app. So, you know, I think that's, we have to kind of evolve. It's exactly, and there's also, you know, you're all familiar probably with an ordo that tells you exactly everything you need to know about yeah. the day. Which is also, day. which is also an app. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the thing about in parishes, uh, let me bring it up now. There's a book called uh, Liturgy Training Publications has this series called The Guide for Celebrating. I have a guide for celebrating First Communion, a guide for celebrating marriage, you name it. A guide for celebrating the liturgy of the hours. It's an easy read, and it really does um, focus on how you can, well, first of all, it gives you a lot of background that we're going through, but it also gives you the practical as far as um, how you could introduce this in a parish. You know, um, what we've done in parishes, uh, what where I worked, um, for the times of the year that we did it, particularly during Holy Week, you know, or sometimes on a special Sunday night, we, and, and this was, some of this was prior to iPhones and apps, but we would prepare a program for people as well. So that's another option. If you want to have, you know, the hymns and everything in there, you could do that as well. Um, so the, but this book takes you through everything. If this is something that you want to start to introduce even to a group, a particular group in a parish. There's also a book out there called Divine Office for Dodos. Really, a woman, she spent a week in a monastery. Uh -huh. and the nuns taught her how to read it. Uh huh. Okay, and it's, it's, it's about eight bucks. It's a little, you know, a little 40 page, very easy read, but explains why you do what you do. Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, that's uh, so important to know, but you're going to know more than that because you're not going to be dodos. <laughs> you're going to be ex experts, yes. <laughs> we, during the COVID, our parish has yeah. a session on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings and Sunday nights doing the morning prayers and evening prayers together as a parish yes and, and we still have continued it even though we can get together but we still continue to via zoom every Saturday night and Sunday that's beautiful that's so great uh, that's one of the, the things we you know innovations of the pandemic that uh, people started to do that kind of thing but then they didn't let go of it they've continued to do it Oh. Just very quickly, yeah. I have a men's group that I run in my parish, mm -hmm. and what, something that I instituted from the was in our evening, we would then go to our chapel to pray night prayer together, and 
I only meet on Thursday night, so that so it would always be the same prayer each month. But the men loved it so much. And then when we were separated from COVID, some of them said they started praying the Thursday night prayer. So I got them all every night prayer for the seven days of the week. Now I have so many of them that are praying it at home. They don't have to. They don't do morning or anything else. But they've started with the night prayer. Now they know what it is. That's it. Never heard of it. That is so great. You planted a seed. That that is amazing. And it's like it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, people. You know, it could be just morning or just night or whatever. Um, but that we know to sanctify our day. I think that's the message. And that people know that this exists, you know, and there are ways to do this. As I said, start with a group like you did. That's that's perfect. And whatever group that um, that you're associated with, start it. Do it. Introduce them to it and do it slowly and simply. And then they're going to be hungry for it, as Paul just described. Um, I think that's just, that's great. And as it says here, you know, again, as you know this, this is the action of the whole church, as I said before, as liturgical prayer, the action of the baptized as priest, prophet, and king. But it really comes from uh, scripture, pray without ceasing, you know, that we, we are a people of prayer and we can be praying, you know, at all times. And the beautiful thing about this, it really helps us connect with the natural rhythm of each day. As I said before, morning prayer, waking up, the theme is like resurrection, you know, and then just praying throughout the day and recognizing what each prayer, there's always, and they do repeat, you know, which so you become familiar uh, with the Psalms, uh, with the prayers, uh, yes, and they become part of you, and it is, it's is—it's—it's beautiful. Um, the other thing is, and this is what I love, it immerses us more fully into the liturgical year, that every day when we open it up about today, we know if it's a solemnity, a feast, a memorial, or if it's, you know, a, a weekday in ordinary time. We know we're connected with the liturgical year and to be connected to the liturgical year, we are connected to the mysteries of Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. That's who we are. That's what I mean when I say this is about our identity, right? And if we do this for ourselves, then we can do it for one other person, you know? Uh, And it also will prepare us for mass. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to pray morning prayer and then go to weekday mass or Sunday mass or whatever whatever your schedule is. But it's just so beautiful to do that, right? Good? All right, so. Uh, Doctor, I should, I'm sorry. Can I just no, give no, a plug? Don't be sorry, can, please. I, can I give a plug? We, we have it three yes. times a day on my channel. We have, so we have morning prayer at 6.30. Evening prayer at 6 p.m. and night prayer at 9.30 for anybody who wants to watch. All right, that's there you all. Go. all right. <laughs> and that's net. Is it net TV? Yes. 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 Which you can net also TV. see online at uh, netnewyork.tv. Net can, can you send? Can you send that link out to everybody? Yeah, I'll put it in right now. Okay, great. Thanks. All right, great. And send it to me, Bill. I'll put it in the chat right here if that works for everybody. <laughs> Okay. Thanks. 
That's great. See? Thanks for allowing that plug. No, uh, listen, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, awesome. You know, when you think about people who are, you know, whether they're ill or homebound, what a beautiful thing, you know, that they have that. What's the Um, Yes, Carlos. No, I I was speaking to somebody from, uh, they're from, I think, uh, Honduras, right? They were telling me that, like, in their, in their, like, in town, they live in a little village in, in Honduras. They told me that there's the priest doesn't even, they don't even have masks over there. So I was thinking, like, you know, like what they do, like, do, like, so I was thinking that, you know, if they do the liturgy, that, that would be great for them to, to, you know, to, to have. To have absolutely, to be able to pray this. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Yeah. See, we, you know, we're not aware that there are people in the world in places that they don't have the luxury of masks every day that I think most of us still have in this area of the country, you know, but it's not that way everywhere, even in the United States, you know. Um, So just a little bit of uh, just going back briefly to, to connect it with our study of history. Um, The early church, as I've said so many times, really took this very seriously and um, to pray at all times. It was so much a part of the early church communities. And it was prayed by the whole church. You know, all the community prayed. Their life centered around this, uh, centered around Jesus Christ. And every everything they did was focused on Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, but in time, as we, I think we are aware, it was prayed only in monasteries and by the clergy. Okay. It was, but it was prayed in cathedrals, uh, but it was less common among the lady. Now in the middle ages, um, there are two different types of, of the divine office, the cathedral office, which was, from what I've read, was pretty accessible and popular if people were near a cathedral, right? Um, And then there was the monastic office, which was lengthy scripture readings, lengthy cycles of somnity, and an emphasis on hearing the word of God and reflecting on it. And you'll notice that if you were to go, uh, even on your app, it always, after the reading, says, appear to silence. You know, and we need that. And when we get to the general instruction with uh, Eucharistic liturgy, we're going to talk about silence. But just to allow that the words to resonate with you. And there is always a very deep message. And the way, like I said, if I'm on retreat, I will do every one of the hours, you know. And I try to think of it, you know, how is this speaking to me? And there is always something I need to hear there, always, in every single one of them. So it's quite a beautiful thing. And it's almost like putting myself in line with these early Christian communities who just, you know, prayed. And prayer was so much a part of their life. And and we can form that in our own lives, even with our families, you know. Um, I knew, um, I I did my doctoral studies with an Anglican priest who of course was married and he had four kids. And he said, we do Compline every night. Every night we do Compline at home. 
you know, so, you know, that's something to, to consider uh, doing as well. And as Jackie mentioned, there's opportunities on Zoom with uh, groups from the parish. We, uh, we always had discussions amongst the group uh, regarding the phone versus the book and uh, a little bit of this, a little argument over the circuitness of the phone over the book. Do you find it neutral or how do you? You know, I am a book person, as you probably noticed. <laughs> I like books. I love books. And I have my four volumes. I have Christian Pear, but I can't carry them around with me all day. So I'm a bit practical. Do I, when I attend, when I come to, I feel guilty pulling out my phone. But that's what I have in my pocket. I don't. <laughs> but, but I have it with me. And for me... Yes, there is a sacredness about our beautiful prayer books. Absolutely. And I would say when you have a chance to use your book, use your book. But when you don't and you have your phone, it's better than nothing. It's almost like to me, that's the way no I look at it. not to do when you have your phone with you. Because even if you get in the morning, you can get somewhere and just open up the app and low profile and just go ahead and do it. Yeah. You could, on the app, you could have it you know, um, that you have sound. So you could right, basically yeah. put yeah. it on your car. Yep. Yeah. Calendar's got a really good... Uh, you know. So, to me, it's better than nothing. I think... The, I, sorry. Huh? Sorry. I think the other thing is for evangelization. When you're getting people to come in to, you know, evening prayer, morning prayer, it's it's very confusing for them with, you know, with the book. It's confusing for the inquirers, the first, second, and sometimes even the third years, you know, when they're trying to find, you know, their place in the book and you're doing, and, and I really, you know, and I really, really believe that you should not be, you know, you know, rooting through a book while the prayer is going on. You should be concentrating on the, on the prayer itself. So yeah, you have it set up. Exactly, but it's very—it's not easy to set up. I mean, you have to know how to set it up. It takes a yeah. while, so to get people in, especially when people are coming in after work or before work, and you want to get—you want to get it done. You want to—you—you you want to get everybody in there. Um, the app is a perfect thing. If they want, they can go back and they can play with the book afterwards. Yeah, I—I I, um, I mean, part of what you're saying, I would definitely agree with. It's better than nothing. But you, I, I would want people to know the book is there. They do for parish, for parish. They make a simplified book of Christian prayer. It's right. about this thick. And in a parish where I used to work, we had them for whole, and we put them out in baskets and handed them out during Holy Week. You know that people could use. But um, I, I mean, I'm with you on that. It took me a long time to learn it, yeah. but I'm always so proud when I learn something. And it's a matter of being organized and setting it up. Yeah, I just but, don't. So I, I yeah, think for both. Yeah, I just don't, you know, it's it's. I just don't want to turn people off, yeah. you know, because yeah. they're having problems, you know, and they're sitting there and they look stunned when you're saying, you know, you start to say the prayers and you see them flipping through the books and they don't know where they're going and you know, and then they're looking up and. So, you know, I usually tell them, look, you know, use the app, go back to buy the book, go back to the book and then learn how to and then use these use these, you know, these actual um, resources on the Web to show you where to put the ribbons 
that you can learn how to go back and forth with the book. And also I would hope for anybody coming in, like for a parish, if you're going to do this as a parish thing, that you have a session to teach them about it. Right. Or um, before coming into the diaconate, that you're, you actually are teaching men how to use it. Or seminarians. Mm-hmm. Robert, what's your experience? Questions. The emphasis that we kind of uh, put on us seminarians is that, <clears throat> well, it's great to have the app, Unfortunately, the app doesn't contain all of the readings, it contain all of the prayers, especially for feasts and uh, even just local diocesan uh, feast days. And oh, yeah. So yeah. you could be on, a, on a, a, read, a typical reading for the day, but if you're at a local diocese or at the cathedral, mm-hmm. it could be could entirely be different. different. That's right. Depending on what they're celebrating. Yeah. So you have to, unfortunately, that's the limitations. But the book does contain yeah. all of the prayers. I, I, you're so, absolutely right. So I think as serious liturgists <laughs> <laughs> that we need to give the book priority. However, we also want to be pastoral with our people. But for us, I think we should be experts at using the book. I think you're right. I think you need to teach people how to use the book, but it's a gradual, it's a, it's a gradual reel in, you know, to get them in to start doing it. And then once they start to do it, they can go back and they can start to play around with the book. And then eventually they can switch over if they want, but it's totally up to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, it's nice to have the, the hardest thing to do is to get to learn how to read this. Oh, the ordo. Yeah. Well, this is this is a uh, the guide to the, oh, the guide. Oh, yeah. I have that. And particularly, yeah. it's okay if it's a normal day, but like on a feast day, it takes you about 10 different places I in know. the book. It, that's true. And you sometimes. That's what you were talking about. And sometimes you actually lose the meaning of what you're doing because you're flipping pages so much. But eventually, it becomes second nature. Right. Well, it does after a while. Like everything else. All of a sudden, it clicks. All of a sudden, it clicks. It becomes second nature. So. It was tied into it of Sunday Mass or Daily Mass. Exactly. And it is. It really is. It's it's... Yes. So, um, I put this up here because I couldn't resist. I actually have this painting hanging in my dining room. Um, it's one of my favorites. But the Angelus. Well, Pretty familiar with the Angelus? I don't know if you've ever seen the painting, but it's called the Angelus. That these, you know, people working out in the fields stop to pray. It's so beautiful. But the Angelus devotion came about partly because lay people thought they should pray throughout the day. I can remember being in grammar school and out playing on the playground. And when the bell rang at 12, Everybody, and this was a school that had four of every grade, 50 in each class. It was back in the olden days. (laughs) Everybody on that playground stopped and said the angels. I have a memory of that. And I think about it every time I walk past that painting. And that actually belonged to my mother, and I inherited it, so I love it. The other thing is, um, so, you know, that's a beautiful thing that people would do that. So it was kind of in place of, you know, the Liturgy of the Hours, uh, when that became more confined to monasteries and clergy, that people did 
continue to pray through the day, but in different ways. And another way is the full rosary, 15 decades, 150 Hail Marys, was like a lay psalter. Uh, 150 psalms for lay people who could not read the Latin Psalter. So think about that. I once, this is a little crude, but I once had a liturgy professor that referred to the rosary as the poor man's breviary. But this is what he meant. Totally different, rosary and the breviary, right? Yeah, but you see here for people who didn't, couldn't read the Psalter, there's a connection. If you pray the whole rosary, 15 decades, I'm talking about the ones the Dominicans used to wear, not just, but if you do all the mysteries, I've tried to do this, it's a little tedious, but I've tried to really do it. So the Dominican doesn't, doesn't include the luminous. It's just I know, because the luminous didn't exist up until, but so it's not the same, but if you pray the rosary correctly and meditate on the mysteries, it is connected to meditating on the mysteries of Jesus Christ. I learned this in the fifth grade. Quick story. Rosary was just something we prayed after lunch in school, one decade, you know, whatever. And it was just like Hail Marys. And looked at it more as a prayer to Mary. I had an assignment one year, fifth grade, what the rosary means to me. It was an essay contest, but we all were assigned it in the fifth grade. So I went home and I said to my mother, I have to write an essay tonight on what the rosary means to me. Now, my mother was so wonderful at helping me with my homework. And she sat down and she talked about the rosary like I never heard it before, but she went through all the mysteries. And she said, when you play the ro- pray the rosary, you, and I remember her words, and this is a long time ago, but she said, you see Mary praying, and then you see the angel Gabriel come to her to tell her she'll be the mother of the Savior. You see Mary when she finds Jesus in the temple. And she went through all the mysteries. So I wrote this all down in my essay, handed it in and forgot about it. About a month later, Father Byrne, I think his name was, came into the classroom and said, we have a winner of the essay contest. (laughs) And guess who won? (laughs) My mother. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, I want a big statue of Mary that had the rosary beads inside. And I went home and I said to my mother, we won. Isn't that great? But I'll never, I never forgot it because she really taught me how to pray the rosary, to meditate. And I have to tell you that the connection here is rich because sometimes I can spend, and I'm not kidding, an hour meditating on Jesus's crowning with thorns, particularly if I have a headache. (laughs) I will meditate on that. I'm thinking about Jesus, the thorns in his head, you know, and I'll just, you know, lay there and rest. But that's what we need to do. So all the mysteries of Christ are there. And again, that's this another moment of evangelization to help people to pray the rosary properly, you know, um, that it is quite amazing. All right. So that being said. 
people were always trying to pray. That's the point. Whether it was the Angelus, and we still do that. We do it here before Mass. There's a church that I go to sometimes on my way here if I don't make Mass here. Like today, I come in later. But um, uh, the, the bell rings, their noon Mass is 12.05. So just spontaneously, somebody just leads the whole assembly in the Angelus. So it's kind of nice. So anyway, just pulling back to the documents here, uh, what it says. After the Second Vatican Council, it's telling us that the church, the church is telling us clearly, right? Says that the ordained and laity are called to celebrate the liturgy of the hours, right? People did not know that before the Second Vatican Council, and many people don't know it now, but we're gonna all teach them, right? So Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, number 84 says, therefore, when this wonderful, I love this, that's why I include it. This is, this is poetic. Liturgy uses poetic language. And as I've said before, we really have to immerse ourselves in the language of the liturgy. But listen to this. Therefore, when this wonderful song of praise is rightly performed by priests and others, then it is truly the voice of a bride addressing her bridegroom. It is the very prayer that Christ himself, together with his body, addressed to the Father. I just think that's a beautiful line. And that you'll find in uh, the document on the liturgy, number 84, in that section on the liturgy of the hours. All right? So that's all I'm going to say about that. Now, what do you think? You good? Thoughts, questions? You're all going to get a book, get an app, <laughs> whatever the case may be, and just start somewhere. And even if it is Magnificat, it's beautiful. Expensive, though. I, well, and you can even have this digitally, you know. But it's again, it's better than nothing. Whatever suits you or suits those you're talking with. Magnificat um, is is digital also. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, if you buy it, if you subscribe to it, you can uh, you know go on the website and request it digitally. The same with Give Us This Day. Is it? Oh, really? Yeah, but like I said, I like books. Yeah. No, their uh, U.S. office is right in Yonkers. I know. Yeah, I know that. Exactly. Swing so, by, and we'll get free copies. Th there's a bunch around here sometimes. You know. Um, the editor actually be one of the priests. Okay. What's that? Wasn't the editor one of the priests here? He was, um, Father Cameron. He's, yeah, he's no longer the editor, though. But he was, and he taught homiletics. And my former pastor had a homiletics and thought he was an excellent homiletics. Oh, he was because, terrific. Because of, because of Father Cameron. Yeah, he was he was great. Um, so what I, would, what I think we should do, it's five after. We're a little before, but why don't we take a break? And then we're going to go into, first of all, I want to know if you have any questions, but we're going to go into 
the Roman Missal. But you're all, you're good? And again, keep in mind, we're skimming the surface of every, you can go into depth with every single thing we're doing in this class. It's, it's what we call a survey class. And hopefully someday, if you're finished your degree, you'll come back, take some electives. Uh, there's one in the summer going to be offered. Um, I, I forget what it's called. Aldemar, what is it called? Liturgical environment, year and environment, something like that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I'm trying to whet your appetite to love liturgy. So let's take a 10 minute break and we'll come back and we'll dive into the Roman Missal. And I think it'll help clarify what you need to do with your final exam. I hope. Is an evaluation and a report on a Eucharistic liturgy, a mass, all right, in English, ordinary form, okay? And what I mean by evaluation is you're going to evaluate it. You're going to be critical if you have to be. You know, remember I said I don't want you to become liturgical critics, but for this assignment, yeah, you're going to, you're going to be critical if you need to be. But report means you're going to write it up. That's what you're going to hand in to me, your evaluation. All right? And the, as I say on your syllabus, the idea of the assignment is to observe the liturgy and report on how it exemplified or failed to exemplify significant liturgical principles learned through your reading of both the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, right? Where you have the principles and guidelines of liturgy in there, and the general instruction of the Roman Missal that I'm going to take you through tonight, okay? So after you have observed the liturgy, you're going to write an essay that documents your observations, all right? So as I take you through some of the paragraphs in the general instruction, I'll give you examples of what I mean. Make sense? Okay. We're going, to, we're going to be basically critiquing the celebrant of the mass, is what you're saying then. Not only the celebrant. The participants too? Whatever you see going on. Okay. How are the people gathering? What does it look like in your, wherever you are? What does the gathering look like when people are coming in? Is it quiet? Is it noisy? All that kind of stuff. Observe it. All right. They have hymn books. They have missalettes. Are they singing? Are they participating? Are they bouncing their checkbook? Are they on their phone? Whatever. So yeah, try to... Are they high-fiving everybody in the neighborhood side of the piece? Oh, please. I'm going to get to that tonight. <laughs> I hope. So anyway, I'll give you some examples. But basically, you, you, you want to... Because the purpose of a course like this is to... Even though it's a survey course and you're learning a little bit about a lot of things that you have a better understanding of liturgy in general, all right? And that you know what should be happening in the celebration by the assembly, the celebrant, the deacons, the whoever else is there, okay? Ministers, 
Yeah, go ahead. Just a quick question. Yeah, no, no, please. Identify the church. No, you you can say you don't have to identify the church. I don't care. That's not what this is about. Do not identify it or make. You can make up a name. That's Saint Paul's clown or whatever. Um, <laughs> no. Dr. hour. Am I gonna get thrown out of the church if they catch me like rioting and and, and what? I don't no. know. You know, We're living sit, in edgy times now. Sit a lot in of people a, on edge. Try to sit in a discreet place for this. That everybody doesn't see you doing it. You know, it's not a big deal. Or try. I mean, however you can do it. You know, if you can remember certain things, if you might have to. I'm going to tell you, I keep post notes in my pocket all the time, and there are many times during Mass, I write down something I heard in the homily. So, so I have a suggestion. Yes, go ahead. I intend to find a Mass that I know is being recorded and available later on YouTube, so I can participate in the Mass. Okay. I have to write things down. Okay. And then review the recording and take my notes there. Okay. Just so I'm not interrupting. Uh, well, that, that's a... That's perfect. That's a good idea. But also remembering how, what you experienced by being there. Keep that in mind too. But that's a good idea. You could do that if it's available. The, uh, as far as the, uh, again, it's on the final, but you, the documents here, we talk about the Constitution and sacred liturgy and then the germ. Mm -hmm. Are we supposed to strictly focus on those two documents? You, you, if there's something else, you, a commentary, perhaps, because I'm going to bring to your attention some commentaries. Okay. Uh, Anthony Reno sent me a commentary on the mass. But, but remember, commentaries are good, but I, these are the primary sources that I want you to, you know, not somebody else's interpretation, where there are good ones out there. I, I want you to refer to these. I want to make sure this assignment, and I've done this every time I've taught this course, and it really just, it tells me that you know this stuff, or you know how it should be, even if it's not. So maybe I'm off base on this. If we go and we attend a liturgy mass, where the priest is just phenomenal and he's a liturgist and he's just doing everything beautiful. We won't have too much to write about though. Should we pick a priest that we think is not going no, to? No, well, no, let's say if it's, you want to write, you want to, you want to um, report on what you experience. So if it's great, you can, you can say, and he abided by what the general instruction says and all the liturgical principles were in place. That's beautiful. Lucky if you can. But I think we'd have more, more substance if we went to a mass where he wasn't abiding by those principles. I don't know. You know, I leave it up to you. The point is, is that you know whether the principles are being uh, paid attention to or not. You know how I use that example of the prayer after communion? that they're saying the concluding prayer and they're doing announcements, that's a problem. That is a big problem. And you'll see that when we go through. That's the kind of thing. All right? So let, let's go through this. And I also have a question from Paul from 
two weeks ago that I knew would come up tonight. And this is an example, pretty much an example. I'm going to use it before we get into this, because it's a good example of asking a question about why we do something. So the, the question that was asked was, over the past 15 to 20 years, when the priest says, pray, brethren, that our sacrifice may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. In years past, the assembly would stand after praying the response, right? But now we stand. But now we stand before. And this came about in 2011, which we're going to talk about tonight with the revised edition of the Roman Missal, the third edition of the Roman Missal. And here, if you look in the Roman Missal itself, the rubric is, and the, it says, standing at the middle of the altar, facing the people, extending, and then joining his hands, he says, pray brethren or brothers and sisters. You know that brethren means brothers and sisters. Some people get offended by brethren, but it doesn't mean, it means brother, it's inclusive. You know, people get in, whatever. That my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. The rubric says, the people rise and reply. May the Lord accept this sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name for our good and the good of all his holy church. All right, now it used to be we said that and then we got up. And this comes from a couple of different places. One is, and this is the kind of thing I want to get you used to. One is if you look at, which we'll look at on the screen in a minute, but let me just tell you now. If you look at number 43, under gestures and bodily postures. Number 43 tells us where we should stand. And this is one of the places because it's an oration, okay? So it just here it just lists and the, uh, the end of 43 says, and, and from the invitation, um, pray brethren, all right? Now, if you go to Paragraph 146 in the general instruction, it says, returning to the middle of the altar and standing facing the people, the priest extends and then joins his hands and calls upon the people to pray, saying, pray brethren. The people rise and make the response. All right, that's exactly what it says. Now, all right, so that's the official thing. But we know that's not happening in some places, right? People right. are standing at all different times. Right. Yeah. The other thing is, is that when they say that, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands, the majority of the people, and actually some of the priests will say our hands instead of your hands. Wow. Well, that's not good because exactly. the priest needs to read exactly what's here. Exactly. Yeah, that's important. Right. Very important. And I've seen it. And I've seen it. Well, I've seen it more often than not. And that's the thing. And, um, you know, I so I think it's confusing because if 
people in the nave are saying it, the parishioners are saying it, the priest is saying it, then obviously, you know, the rubric goes out the window, right? Are you not to uh, interrupt, but are you are you talking about our response? May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. Exactly. That's the, our response. The priest shouldn't be saying our response. Exactly. They're, that's it, in here. Right. In and, here. In right. the germ. It becomes our response. Oh, that's ours. It's a dialogue. Right. So right. let me read you what Paul Turner says about this in the commentary. Now you can trust Paul Turner. He's an expert on this. Because in many parishes, the assembly stands just before the priest says these words. Because sometimes the priest, some people stand up, okay? In other words, the people rise after the invitation as they begin to make their response. Uh, the general instruction, 146, what I just read from, says that the people stand for their response. So technically, we got this wrong from the beginning in many, most places. Technically, we should be sitting down, listening to what he has to say, then we get up, then we speak. You see? So, but listen to what he goes on to say. Um, humanly speaking, this dialogue makes more sense if everyone has the same posture throughout. In practice, Congregations that stand as they respond and end up speaking the first words while changing posture. See, that's what's happening. You know, either he's talking and we're getting up or we're talking and we're getting up. And that's not what it says. Now, it seems, then he goes on to say, it seems more natural if the people stand after the washing of the hands, after he washes his hands just before the priest invites them to pray. All right, now I know in one church that in my neighborhood that I go to for weekday mass, the weekday people got used to that. The priest is very deliberate, washes his hands, and everybody stands up. And everybody does it. All right, now, this is an interesting thing to keep in mind. If incense has been used, the entire assembly is already standing. So you see? But in most cases, it's like it seems like nobody knows what to do, and I know we got it wrong from the beginning. Because people used to ask us in the parish, what are we supposed to do? You know, and sometimes the priest would go pray, brethren. Like, in other words, having them stand up. But, you know, I mean, that's an invitation to pray, not an invitation to have them stand up. So, again, you know, watch what goes on when you do your, it'd be interesting. So that's an example. So that's why. That change came with the third edition of the Roman Missal. All right? Postures and gestures. All right? So let's go through as much of this as possible. Okay, um, and again, um, these, what I have up on the screen now is what you find when you open up your general instruction. You, and I have to assume you all have a copy of this, hopefully. Okay. Okay, there it is. There's the Roman Missal. It's a good thing to have if you're a serious liturgist, but certainly not um, mandatory. Okay, 
So the third edition of the Roman Missal, just a little bit of history. I don't know if you all remember when this was in the works, that it was like almost like a battleground in some places, that I got tired of talking about it uh, at staff meetings and every liturgy meetings at the time I was in a parish. It just became like just this bone of contention that this was even happening. Why do we need you know, another edition. But the thing that most people didn't understand is that it was a third edition, meaning what? We had a first and a second, and we'll probably have a fourth and a fifth. <laughs> it's not over. It's a process, right? So here I just kind of give you a rundown on the screen of, of what we saw um, after the Second Vatican Council. In 1963, this revision, as I already told you, was called for in Sacrosanctum Concilium, right? As it called for a lot of things, revisions. So then it's not until 1965, we have the order of mass, the new order of mass, but it's in Latin first, okay? We always have a Latin edition before we have an English or a Spanish or whatever language. There's always the Latin first. So then in 1966, we have the English translation. Then in 69, we have the new order of mass in Latin. And then it's not until 70, we have an English translation. And then in 75, a second edition, all right? And that's what we were all pretty much used to until this third edition, which we had in 2002, in Latin. So it took a longer time to get to the English in 2011 because there was so much controversy about the translation and it did take a while. So that's just um, a little bit of background of where this Roman Missal that we use now um, comes from. Prior to it, and I have the copies home, was a sacramentary. Now it's the Roman Missal, all right? But we've had Roman Missals before. <laughs> but what we had before for the Mass in 1969, uh, 7075, um, was a sacramentary. Like if you were to see my dissertation, for example, that I wrote uh, between 2008 and 2010, I, uh, on the Paschal Triduum, uh, my reference is the sacramentary, because we didn't have this, all right? All right, so, so I think it's important to know that. And there's a book that I think is on, I'm not gonna look now, but it might be on your bibliography, The Genius of the Roman Rite by Keith Pecklers, that he explains all this, that the Roman Rite has been revised since the beginning of time, you know, and now this is in our time. And I, again, that book was meant to be a catechetical tool that to try to help people to understand this. Um, and the other thing with the revision, and we also had this now with the sacraments that have been revised, whenever you have a revision, it's an opportunity for catechesis. And all scholars, would agree that the catechesis after the Second Vatican Council was not done well regarding the liturgy. Because the thought was, well, it's in the people's own language, so they'll understand what it means. 
But when this third edition came out, there was so much catechesis, which I was a part of in my diocese, but there was so much catechesis going on. So it was a positive thing to bring people together, groups together, to teach them about the liturgy. All right, so keep that in mind. So for example, we've already had uh, since this, um, and as you'll see, a lot of it has to do with translation from the Latin, but we've already revised the order of confirmation, uh, baptism for children, uh, matrimony, and the rite of Christian initiation of adults is currently um, um, waiting for approval. And we should have that in about a year or two, uh, my latest um, information. And it will, my point is that it will be an opportunity to, to catechize people about these rights of the church where poor implementation has very often fallen into, a, uh, into practice. All right, um, so translation guidelines. This third edition was all about the translation guidelines and they are in a book which I brought somewhere called Liturgium Authenticum. Here it is. This is half Latin, half English. But basically, this came out of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of Sacraments. They're like they, they, the gatekeepers of the liturgy and all the rites of the church. But, and I've, and I've explained this to you before in passing, but here, here's where it takes effect. The two types of translation from the Latin, dynamic translation, meaning the translators express the thought or the concept rather than the particular words for the original text. And that's what we had in 1969 and in the 70s and what we were praying um, before this edition, the dynamic. And now this translation, this document is calling for a formal translation, meaning the text so translated so that each Latin word has an equivalent word. So it's exact. Now I'll give you an example. When we used to pray the creed, what did we say prior to this? We believe. We believe. What's the Latin? Credo. Credo. What does credo mean? I believe. I believe. That's the perfect example right there. It was lost. So got lost. Now, we used to teach people, well, you know, after the Second Vatican Council, the emphasis on the community, that all together, you know, we're praying as an assembly. So we believe. But you see, now we're going back to this more formal understanding, which, as you'll see on the next slide, has to be the last bullet point, theologically accurate. So the translation using this example, credo, means I believe. Now, if you break that down theologically, I can't speak for any of you. I can speak for myself. And it matches the baptismal right, I believe. So there's a little bit of theology could say a lot more about it, but that's, so it wasn't only the translation, that was part of it. 
but it was also um, to be more theologically accurate. So here, this is the reasons of why this um, revised edition. First of all, there had to be prayers in the Missal for newly canonized saints, okay? Additional prefaces were added, additional masses and prayers for various needs and intention. So things always need to be revised. We're always moving forward, right? Okay, and we saw this in the history from the early church on. You remember we had the Didache and then we had other documents that included that but brought it forward, all right? So then, as I said, to make the English translation closer to the Latin, this became important for these reasons, unified with other Catholics around the world, all right? The example, uh, the Lord be with you, right? What did we used to say? And also with you. Catholics around the world and other languages were saying, and with your spirit. Right, particularly our, our Hispanic brothers on screen were saying, right? And that is true to the Latin, exactly. And as Father O'Neill taught us in year one, it has to do with his ordination. That's exactly right. Yes. So there we go. Theologically accurate, right? Very important. And also, to get the, from the Latin to the English, correctly is important because the other translations and other languages is going to come from the English, right? So the English has to be right. This was the thinking behind this. And it makes sense. But at the time, you know, people, it was, it was almost ridiculous. You know, I'm always of the mind, think with the mind of the church and let, there's, great reasons for these things and let's just move together with trust and in prayer and it, all, it did all work out it did all work out but the thing is is that we know this will probably in years to come maybe uh, to be revised again the other thing is that it reflects this famous phrase that you're going to see in your uh, kevin irwin's uh, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. The law of faith is the law of belief. So we pray what we believe. So it has to be accurate. Because what we are praying is what we believe. So when we pray the creed, it has to begin with I believe, not we believe. Okay? All right. So now, let's start to look at the general instruction. And I don't really want to make this boring. I want to make it meaningful, but um, I'll do the best I can not to make it boring. Because <laughs> I think sometimes it can be boring to look at some of these documents. But I want there, you to, yes, Carlos. Look at what I found in the library right here. Uh, the Roman Missal, that's yeah. the ritual, the ritual edition. Yeah. I have one of those. Yep, it's yeah, beautiful, right? Yeah, 2011. Yes. So, so that's great. You have that. You'll be able to look at all the rubrics, the mass, and then look at the commentary in the general instruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Look at that. It's See, books are beautiful. And ritual books are meant to be beautiful because of what's in them. Nice art, too. Yep. Thank you for showing us that. 
I, I didn't care. I just brought my, see, a study edition, ritual texts come in study editions because then you can feel free to make notes or write in it for study purposes, but you wouldn't dare write in a ritual book like that. No way. No. So the study, you can't, the study edition, that can't be used at mass then? No. You would use the ritual edition at mass. It has tabs and everything. This is for me to study it for purposes of teaching, my own knowledge. I have things highlighted, etc. Yeah. So I have study editions for most of my ritual texts, but I also, because I love books, I have the real thing as well. So the, the um, general instruction, I just want to teach you how to navigate it and to really read it deeply so that you know exactly what the church is telling us the liturgy should look like. And um, it's elaborating on the principles taken from uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, but in conformity to the Roman Missal. Make sense? So chapter one, and I, as you, if you looked at the notes, you notice that I didn't uh, type out every single thing I want to talk about because I, it would have taken me forever and I, I couldn't do it. So I'm going to highlight some things that are on the screen and then take you to your book uh, and you can just mark it. But chapter one, uh, just looking basically at uh, paragraph 21. And remember that um, most, if not all at this point, um, church documents use paragraph numbers, okay? Not page numbers. But paragraph 21 set is telling us you know, about, about this, um, this uh, book. Hence, this instruction aims both to offer general lines for a suitable ordering of the celebration of the Eucharist. This is the goal of this general instruction. And to explain the rules by which individual forms of celebration may be arranged. And it's really important as you read these paragraphs, when there's a footnote, just look at the footnote. Because in most cases, you get the Z, they're taking from Sacrosanctum Concilium or some other document from the Second Vatican Council, in most cases. All right? But so you, you need to, um, the aim of the book is to show you basically what are the rules. <laughs> and you need to know the, what are the rules. So when you can tell when something is done, I like to say appropriately or inappropriately. I hate to, I don't want to be like the liturgical police kind of, you know what I mean? But sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it's totally inappropriate. But it's, it's good for graduate students, future deacons, future priests, lay ministers, teachers to know this stuff, okay? Um, 22, paragraph 22 goes on to say in paragraph 3 of paragraph 22, the bishop should therefore be determined that the priests, the deacons, and the lay Christian faithful grasp ever more deeply the genuine significance of the rites and liturgical texts and thereby be led to the active and fruitful celebration of the Eucharist. It's in other words, the more we know about what, how the celebration should be, 
it's going to, our experience is going to be deepened. You know, I mean, our experience theoretically should be deepened by just going and praying the liturgy. But the more you know, it's deepened even further. That's why it says, and the lay faithful. So in other words, we have an obligation, the bishop has an obligation to make sure that somebody's teaching people this in the appropriate way. You know, and not only here in a seminary or a graduate school, but in our parishes, liturgical catechesis, right? Um, he should also be vigilant in ensuring that the dignity of these celebrations be enhanced and in promoting such dignity, the beauty of the sacred space, right? Of the music. We need to have good musicians that are pastoral musicians and understand. And we'll look at uh, in a couple of weeks briefly for your awareness to know the document on sacred music. And art should contribute as greatly as possible. So the space, everything, and this is, observe this too, observe the space, you know? I used to work in a parish where the pastor always made sure that there were flowers outside or plants, depending on the season, the natural season. That was a sign of hospitality. You know, in your own home, like I had to make sure I had mums and a pumpkin and all that on my step for people coming to my home, even the kids trick-or-treating to be welcoming. Well, it's the same thing. When you go into a church, what is there to give you a sense of, I'm happy you're here. So you can start your observation before you even walk in the door, right? And then, you know, what is the environment like? I mean, this, forgive me for saying this, but it's true. During the pandemic, I go to different churches. I belong to one, but for weekday mass, sometimes I go to another. Now we're in a pandemic still pretty much. We don't want to be overconfident, but hopefully it's going away. There is one church that I go to, this was during the summer more for weekday, because I'm here now. It was sparkling clean. I felt comfortable. The other church that I went to, three weeks later, I saw the same thing on the floor. You know what I'm saying? That makes, it's important, the space that we're in. You know, pandemic or no pandemic, but I just felt, Dr. Michael Barber, who's a product of Scott Hahn's student bill, he talks about it on the one CD I have, that when you go to the church, if it's done right, you're going to see flowers by the altar, you're going to see water, because it's supposed to represent the original Garden of Eden. Well, yeah, the heavenly <clears throat> paradise. The heavenly liturgy. So it, it needs to be beautiful. I mean, art and environment in Catholic worship is a document. It needs to be beautiful. Right. You know, it's it's hard in some cases, for instance, to try to get the congregation. They don't sing to begin with. You got to sort of grind it out of them. But when you take the missalettes away, and well, you you've lost the ability for people to respond. Oh, or, like during the pandemic? Because talking because like right now we're still okay. We have no missalettes. Right. So there's no longer servers. Right. So this has totally changed the entire demeanor. Of the mass, we have no cross bearer, no incense, 
you know, none of this. That's a good point. And uh, somebody else who did this assignment for me last year when I did an independent with somebody, independent study, um, you know, they were doing this in the height of the pandemic. So you're, some of what you're going to say in your, uh, in your evaluation, if it's something that's affected by the pandemic, say so. That's important. So you've really because got three categories. You've got what's good, what's bad because of the pandemic. And what adaptations and, do we need to make because there is a pandemic? Okay, that's part of our evaluation. It, yeah, because if something is done a certain way, for example, no cross parent because in, and every diocese is different. You know, um, some of you are from Rockville Center, some from Brooklyn, you know, some, most of you from New York, but every place you are, and I think Thomas is up in Albany, right, Thomas? <laughs> so wherever, it's, it's going to be different because the rules of the pandemic are different from diocese to diocese. Parish, parish well, yeah, yeah de yes, depending on if they are abiding by local right that a diocese sends. So keep that in mind, but you make a good point. But, um, and um, not to belabor it, but what Rob brought up with the pandemic, and we there were no hymn books and everything, parishes had to be creative in using hymns that had refrains that people could sing. And that could be announced. Please join us on the refrain of. And well, I know my husband, who's a music director, made sure he chose hymns that he knew people knew, at least the refrain. Even if it was the same one every week, didn't matter. That adaptations like that. And people were singing along, because I was there at his church. So, you know, we did have to make some provisions. But um, so, um, Chapter two in the germ is called the structure of the mass, its elements and its parts. And um, I want to uh, go through and just let you know what's here and then just stop and give you my own commentary. But for starters, I have up here paragraph 27. For in the celebration of the mass, in which the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated. That's theological. We, we've learned that. We've talked about that, right? Christ is really present in the very assembly gathered in his name. I, I put this up here for several reasons. First of all, it echoes uh, Sacrosanct of Concilium, paragraph 7, um, about how Christ is present in the Mass. But they also, it's echoing our earliest tradition where what? The assembly was very important. And then remember, as years went on, centuries went on, the assembly was not important, right? So this has got everything in it. Christ is really present in the assembly gathered in his name, in the person of the minister, in his word, and indeed substantially and uninterruptedly under the Eucharistic species. So I just wanted to help you to see how this is echoing the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, okay? All right. Um, so, let me just backtrack uh, looking at the book, just that you see what's here. The general structure of mass, right? Um, that I just read from in 27, and then the different elements of the Mass, starting at 29, uh, 
paragraph number. All right, and here it's just explaining. So for example, the first element, reading and explaining the word of God. And it's talking about the scriptures uh, when they're read in church. And again, it's echoing the constitution on the sacred liturgy. Then it goes into the prayers and other parts pertaining to the priest at paragraph 30. But okay, let me, on the screen you see 28. The basic structure, which I know you all know this. Two parts, liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist. All right, okay. I don't have to elaborate on that. So, so here's what I'm talking about now, what you find, right? Um, the reading and explanation of the word, the prayers and other parts pertaining to the priest from paragraph 30 to 33, all right? Then you see other formulas occurring during the mass. Um, now, starting at 34, and actually the text uses the word celebration, uh, not mass, occurring during the celebration. And this is important, the language, because people don't understand that it's a celebration. We participate in the celebration of the mass, right? And um, paragraph 34, here's where I didn't print them all out on your notes, but you have your books, just make a note that I went over it because I just wanna pick out highlights. I don't wanna just be boring and read them to you. You can read them on your own. But in paragraph 30, the first line says, since the celebration of mass by its nature has a communitarian character. And then when you go back to the, the last sentence there, it says, for they are not simply outward signs of communal celebration, but foster and bring about communion between priest and people. What's the key word here? Communion. Yeah. Where did we hear about that? back in the first century, right? Early Christians, community, communion with one another was so important, all right? And 35 echoes it again. So they are the action of the whole community. See, we know this wasn't always the case prior to the Second Vatican Council, but remembering from the liturgical movement, and all those great heroes like Virgil Michael and others that were learning this, right? Um, that it really does, remember it was set in motion by the Second Vatican Council. And here we have this opportunity with a revised edition of the Roman Missal to re-educate everybody, clergy and um, uh, lay faithful as well. Um, 38 is just a matter of pronouncing the different texts. It's basically talking about that you have to have, you know, a strong voice, uh, the right tone, etc. Okay. There's a section on the importance of singing, right? And and it's a pretty long section. It's two paragraphs, but it basically is telling us that uh, quoting scripture, singing is the sign of the heart's joy. We sing for a reason. We sing, as I remember one priest saying that I learned from, we sing when we are happy. Again, it's, it's a sign of joy. The angels sing. 
Yes, so singing is really important. And paragraph 40 says, great importance should therefore be attached to the use of singing in the celebration of mass. That's why we need skilled, professional, pastoral musicians in our parishes. It's important, right? Um, okay, so you're all gonna read this. I'm gonna trust you. This section starting at 42 that I have highlighted in red, this is an important section, gestures and bodily posture. Um, and then I also made a note to see those later paragraphs because they refer back, okay? But this, um, I think, is really important to understand what our gestures should be and what they mean. What does it mean when we are sitting, standing, kneeling, hands folded, walking in procession? All of that has meaning to it. And one of the problems is that a lot of people don't know what the gestures or postures should be at different times during the Mass. And this will help you uh, to see that. Um, also, in the spirit of the liturgy, Ratzinger's, the book that um, some of you are doing a book review, he has a nice section on this as well. I know that I've used it um, for other things. Um, silence. Um, if we have time, I'm going to go back to some examples of posture and gesture and action. But silence at paragraph 45. We're uncomfortable with silence in general. It makes it like nobody knows what they're doing. If we pause for two seconds, you know, and this and even the rubrics calls for silence at particular appropriate times. You know, so for example, in between the readings, there should be silence. But you know, everybody's like, well, who's, nobody knows what they're doing, that attitude. That's rare. Um, that's absolutely rare. Time for that silence? What's that? Is there like a specified time frame? You know, there, you, you ought to use your gut. There's a, so that. technically, when you finish the first, both of the readings, when you finish the reading, there should be a, a pause before you absolutely. say the word of the Lord. Similarly, in the prayer of the faithful, there should be silence. Uh, you know, you, you have... Every time I hear people, when when we have lectors up there, when they do the prayer of the faithful, the, the issue is at the end when they say, um, for their intentions, it's intentions, and then they go right into the end. And, right. you the know. Intentions in the silence of our hearts. Exactly. No, we don't have a split second to no. even think of the intention. Exactly, exactly. And also, after the homily, we shouldn't just jump up for the creed. Let's absorb, internalize something. And and it can be done. I mean, we do it nicely here. I've been in parishes where it's done nicely. But it's just a matter of the leadership doing it and insisting upon it. And again, the liturgical catechesis when we have the opportunity. But people need to... to experience silence because that's where the Lord is speaking to us and if we can't even pause after we hear the word of God proclaimed somebody had their hand up 
you know, it's this again, it's just based on experience. Like, for instance, where I'm at right now, um, one of the priests actually makes a point when mass is over. Hey, we got two dead in 33 minutes. You know, he'll point that out. But the, the one that is that really causes the problem is when the priest says, let's call to mind our sins. And then, you. you know, Lord, you're sent to heal the contrite of heart. And not giving people enough time to think about their sins, you know, and just go immediately yeah. launch into the... Yeah. Uh, well, those are the appropriate times. Also, uh, the collect, let us pray. This is all part of the introductory rites, preparing us for these sacred mysteries, preparing us to, I mean, I could have spent two hours just talking about introductory rites, um, but I want to teach you how to navigate this book so you can know that, and then we can go back to it next time, next week. But, for example, in the introductory rites, before the collect, when the priest says, let us pray, there should be silence. And that is a time that we need to tell God our story. What's going on with me today? Am I here? Do I have something going on in my life that I want to offer to you? Am I happy? Am I sad? Am I this and that? We need time for that. And then the beautiful collect collects us in prayer to just bring that into the liturgy. But let us pray. You know what I mean? So this, this is all the kind of stuff you're going to observe. What their silences, you know? And as far as how long the silence, it's, it's almost like the presider has to use his gut. You know, how much is too much? How much is not enough? Like my pastor at Mass, in between the readings, especially being elected there, mm-hmm. he doesn't say anything, but he'll, he'll fold his hands and he puts his head down. And we have that moment of silence. And it's usually at least two minutes. And then you know he's ready to move on when he lifts his head. That's it. And that's beautiful. That's teaching the assembly something. That we need to be recollected. See, people don't know how to be have have that um, posture of being recollected. That's when the Lord speaks to us. So we're we're robbing the assembly of that, of hearing what did the Lord tell me in these readings because there is a message for every single one of us, but we need a chance for that. And the same thing, you know, with the homily after that. So these periods of silence are put in the rubrics for a reason, for a reason, you know? Um, so, so pay attention to this. So I'm trying to give you the tools you need for your test. And also um, to know what you find in this um, book. This section three is extremely helpful. The individual parts of the mass. And there's a lot here, and I probably won't even have time to go through all of the uh, paragraphs that I noted on your, um, on your notes here, but I really want you to read and study uh, this section. Because here is where it goes through, in section A, the introductory rites. Um, These are the rites that precede the liturgy of the word, namely the entrance, the greeting, the penitential rite, the Kyrie, the Gloria, and the collect. 
they have it's not a long time but there there's a lot of important stuff happens in that little bit of time because we need to be prepared to hear the word of god <clears throat> if we really and truly understand and believe that jesus is present in the word and he is speaking to us today we need to be prepared for that right um, and it says right there, their purpose is to ensure that the faithful who come together as one establish communion, there it is again, and dispose themselves properly to listen to the word of God and to celebrate the Eucharist worthily. So if the introductory rites are so important, what is it telling people that they can't do? Come late, exactly. You need to be there early to recollect yourself. <laughs> Can't just come in at the last minute. You need to be there, sitting quiet for a while. That's why I want you to observe. Is your space, when you come in, say at 10 to the hour, are people talking like crazy or is it quiet? You know, there are some churches now that are putting up signs. My church has a signs sporadically nicely done be still and know that i'm god and you can hear pin drops in that church so how about kind of night how about people moving around spontaneously during the service which uh, i've seen a lot of times which is really disrespectful well yeah exactly yeah i remember once going to a weekday mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. I had to go into the city for something. It was Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And this was way pre, this was probably 20 years ago. I felt like I was at Mass at Penn Station. That's right. <laughs> it was the first time I ever went. And I just thought, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, they leave the gift shop open. The gift <laughs> shop is open. I know. So don't, don't go, with all due respect, don't go there. And they also have Christmas decorations during Advent. They do masses every 30 minutes between like 12 and 1.30. That's for the tourists, though. So. Right. They, 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 that's, why they, that's why they put it out in October. I know. I know. We had a member of our liturgy committee once when we were talking about in Advent, you know, how the, the environment needs to look. And this guy, he said, well, they, they're decorated at St. Patrick's Cathedral. We had to say, well, that's, it's different. You know? We can't do that. I, I remember years ago, we went. To, my wife and I went to Christmas Day Mass, and you know, it was a beautiful celebration and everything, and all of a sudden, the kids started crying. I turned to my wife, and now it's Christmas, and all the people around me started laughing. Because it's not Christmas until the kids cry in the morning. <laughs> all right, so this section, I really want you to read deeply, all right? So the introductory rites. There's a section on each, the entrance, reverence to the altar, and greeting of the assembled people. This is important. I want to bring out one thing in paragraph 50, because I want you to notice this. When the pre and I'm going to summarize it. When the priest gets to um, the um, presider's chair, okay, the first thing he should do is make the sign of the cross. I want you to know this, because he shouldn't say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, he should not. Or, with all due respect, I, this is uh, observation, 
wonderful priest that I know, he always prefaces his action of making the sign of the cross by saying, let us begin as we do all things in the name of the Father and of the Son. There's no commentary. And I've done a lot of studying on this and a lot of talking about it to parish liturgy committees and that had priests on them. There is power. Number one, we've already started when we gathered and we sang the hymn. You know, we started, we gathered, we sang, we formed ourselves into one body. So for it's inappropriate to say, well, let us begin now. You know, but because we already did begin. So just be aware. There's power in that action. When he gets there, the hymns, if they're singing, the hymn stops in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Calling on the Trinity is more powerful than any good morning. But you see, this is where education of your assembly, they don't think it's friendly. You know what I'm saying? Because they, they don't understand. They don't understand the power. We are gathering in the Trinity. Anyway. Dr. Eric? Yes. I have a question. Um, yes. I went to a 6.30 mass, uh, and the lector, she was reading the entrance antiphon. Okay. And she started out with good morning. Okay. And reading the entrance antiphon while the priest was coming in. Is that proper? Well, if it was the cantor, and you can correct me if I'm well, wrong. Well, she wasn't the cantor. She was the reader because it was right. at 630 morning. There was, yeah, there was no music. So I'm just yeah. saying to compare, right? And there she was, was no at the ambo. Yeah. 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 So if it was the cantor at a mass with music, they would probably say, good morning. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Let us begin our celebration by singing whatever. O come, O come, Emmanuel. So if... She could, uh, she could do that. That would be appropriate. Oh, it, oh okay. Because the entrance antiphon is taking the place of the hymn, in that case. And very often, it okay, okay. So I judged. Okay. Oh, that's okay. But for the priest then to come out and say good morning, everybody. Yeah. No. It, it, okay. Yeah. That's a good question. So you're you're observing. And we have an elective handbook. Before we join the celebration mess, please make sure you silence any electronic devices being met with you. And, and invariably, the priest starts off, and then you hear someone's phone ring. I know. I know. I'll the car. Let me just go. I'm going to go through this in five minutes. I'm going to try. I And mark your book of what you need to look at. All right? And I'm just going to stop if I feel like I need to tell you something like that. All right, so I want you to read through the Penitential Act, uh, the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Collect, and it's right there in number 54. Next, the priest calls upon the people to pray, and everybody, together with the priest, observe a brief silence. It's right there, in here, and it's in here. All right? So that's why you have to know this to do your observation. Then part B... Goes starting at 55, goes into the liturgy of the word, and it has an ex explanation of it. And then starting at 56, there's a whole section on silence that we already talked about, but it, it tells you what is the appropriate silences that you should be taking during the liturgy of the word. Then 
starting at 57 and 58. I just want to, um, where the liturgy of the word is concerned, to bring to your attention the whole idea of the table of the word. There are two tables, the table of the altar, the table of the word that is called what? The ambo, not the pulpit. We don't call it a pulpit anymore. That was pre-Vatican II, the ambo, because you see with the Second Vatican Council where scripture became important, Jesus is present in his word. Sacrosanctum Concilium number seven, we proclaim sacred scripture from the table of the word, and that's what ambo means, the table of the word, okay? And it's right in here at 58, okay? Um, it talks about the responsorial psalm. If you have a cantor in your church or a psalmist, notice where they are proclaiming the responsorial psalm from. What place? That's an interesting thing. We made a concerted effort in the last parish I worked in, even if it meant the cantor had to move from the lectern where she was singing to the other side of the sanctuary, to uh, proclaim the psalm from the ambo, because the psalm is not a beautiful interlude, it's scripture. So it's an important thing. Here and here it says it can be done at the ambo or another place. So I'm for the ambo, if it's scripture. <laughs> Dr. Rishner, so in our parish, we were doing that pre-COVID. Right. Is that something you'd want to say no, but as a result of COVID? Yes. The, we're not right I now, know. we're not doing it. In one church where I go to, the, um, the lector is not even reading the readings from the ambo, right. is reading from another place because they don't want to share the we're microphone. We're doing it from the lector. Yeah. The reader and the son. Yeah, because I read at a funeral at this particular church, and so did my daughter, and I was trying to tell them, the priest had to tell me, well, actually, you're going to read from over there. <laughs> Hopefully we'll change that yeah. soon. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Eschenau, um, in my parish, there's two places we're reading, so the lectors read in one place, and then the, and then the priest reads from another place. Is so that just for COVID? During COVID? No, always. So there's always? like a one yeah, always. So on the left of the, like on the sanctuary on the left, that's where the um, the lectern, I don't know, I think it's called a lectern. Yeah, lectern. And on the right, then it's, that's the one that you call, that's the one that, so I know as a book, you used to yeah. call it as an ambo. Yeah, it's called an ambo, and technically all of the scripture readings should be done from the ambo, whether it's done by the lector or the deacon or the priest. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so the, we got to change that then. Well, yeah, well, send them an email. Give me another few minutes, right? You okay? Because you, you and Paul, Paul, go yeah, ahead. Just quick question. Yeah. Oh, and, and also, then, because uh, due to the red and, and, and say the light. Right. So it's inappropriate to say the first reading is. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Just do A it. reading from. What else? Yeah, that's really important. That's really important. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. It's also common sense. Of course it is. It wasn't a reading before the first one, so it's the first one. Exactly. Yeah, we ad lib. You know, and it's not necessary to do that. Yeah, Rob. If there is no music, you go from the second reading right straight to the gospel, because I 
I've actually heard people just recite the allegations. Oh, gosh. You know, I'm, I'm have, my blood pressure's rising. I had that written in my notes to tell you. Would you ever go to a birthday party and they bring out the cake with all the candles and stand there and go, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Bob. Happy birthday to you. Ridiculous. Well, it's just as ridiculous to say, alleluia, alleluia. If there's no music, you don't do it. Good. I'm going to tell them you said so. That's where I get a bad reputation. <laughs> I don't, I, you know what? I stand by it. It makes no sense. But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. We'll back you up. So um, the place where you make announcements, um, wait, only for announcements, um, is that is that the other, that's the place that's just for the lectern then? Yes. Announcements really shouldn't be done from the AMBO. I'm being really pretty technical here. The AMBO should be reserved for the word. As rule of thumb. Yes, Govinda. Does that mean the homily shouldn't be done also from the AMBO? No, they, the homily can be done from the AMBO, absolutely, because that's a reflection on the word. Yes, definitely. Good question. Excellent. Yeah, I love it. You're all thinking. I'm getting you all well, crazy. The Divine Office app that we listen to, they have errors in there because they say a reading from the first letter of St. Paul. And you don't. You don't. In the... In the um, in morning prayer, evening prayer, whatever, you don't even announce it. You just read it. Right. But they, it goes through that whole app. I'm going to get after them. <laughs> I'm going to call them up. So you can't trust everything, but trust what you'll hear here, I think. I think I'm being a real purist here. But once you learn it, then you, then you see where it's mistakes are made. Yeah. And that's the purpose of this um, assignment. All right. Now. Just bear with me, I promise. Just a couple more minutes, and then I'll close it off. And then gather your questions. We'll start with questions next week. Um, in this section, we're still at the Liturgy of the Word. After the homily, it's not in the general instruction, but I want you to see if there's a dismissal of the catechumens. After the homily, before the profession of faith, if there's catechumens in a parish, there should be they should be dismissed. See if they may it may not be the masherat, but make note if it is if it is. I've never seen. You've never have. seen it. Never. You may not be doing it. And, and don't they have the scrutinies where they announce their names? Well, we'll get to that when we talk about the RCIA. I don't want to take the time now. <clears throat> all right. Um. All right. Really quickly. I feel bad keeping it, but I just want to get through. So then we go see the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And this is a long section, but I want you to read it carefully, uh, all the paragraph numbers. And let me just, um, it first in 72, it explains it. Then it talks about the preparation of the gifts. Note the language, preparation of the gifts. Okay. It talks about um, what the gifts, you know, if I know, I know pandemic, we haven't had the uh, bringing up of the gifts by the faithful in some places. 
all right? So I know that your, your report is gonna be influenced by the pandemic and just note that. But pre-pandemic, no pandemic, what should come up in the offertory procession? The bread and the wine that's going to be offered. That's it. Right. The bread and the wine. That's my point. No symbolic gifts. Like if it's first communion or confirmation or something. Right. We bring up that which can be transformed. I have to say that because I've seen what goes on in some parishes. Okay. But as this notes, it's appropriate that the money, the collection come up. Because that's the fruits of our labor. That's our offering. And it is transformed into whatever we're doing. Because it takes money to preach the gospel. That's called stewardship. All right. Um, it goes through the uh, prayer over the offerings, which I already talked about in relationship to the question. The Eucharistic prayer, which is the center and high point. Mm -hmm. The thing here that's important to recognize is that the meaning of the prayer is that the it's everybody's prayer. Even though we only have responses, we have to understand that that's our prayer as well. And the words here that it uses, the Eucharistic prayer requires that everybody listens to it with reverence and silence. But the key thing is, is to actively listen to it and pray it, you know, even if it's something we're listening to, that we, it's our prayer as well, that the priest is praying on our behalf. All right, so it goes all through that, and then I just want to say a little bit of something about the Our Father and the Rite of Peace, and then I'll conclude this in like a The Our Father, the problem with the Our Father is going back to gestures and actions. Nobody knows what to do. And everybody does something different. There's technically no rubric. However, deacons, what is what does the deacon do during the Our Father? Folds his hands. The priest uses the Aaron's position. The deacon folds his hands. The faithful do what the deacon does. So the appropriate gesture for the Our Father is hands folded, not hands out, not holding hands. You know, various traditions have crept up in places and the best advice I got from somebody was leave it alone, but you gotta know what's the right thing. And when you have an opportunity to teach little children or the sponges, that's what you teach them. The right of peace, whether in a pandemic or out of a pandemic, there's a problem. Because the rubric is you offer Christ's peace, the peace the world cannot give to the people closest to you, meaning here and here. You know what I'm saying? The pandemic, we took it out and we're supposed to go right into the Lamb of God. We do that brilliantly here. Today at Mass, the priest went, not here. I was at a church on my way here, like waving to everybody, and everybody was doing all this. It's inappropriate, whether we're in a pandemic. In a pandemic, we took it out. It's not a big deal. But right into the, it interferes with the Lamb of God, you know? But 
if we're worried in a pandemic, it's only meant to be offered. And you see this and to, you know, so we do it all wrong. In one sense, I, I mean, I, I hate to be so dramatic, but in one sense, I hope they put back for that reason, because people don't understand what it is. It's not a high five or a peace sign. This is Jesus's peace that we offer to each other, this peace the world cannot give. And that could be so beautiful. And we do it right before receiving communion, part of the communion rite. All right, so then the concluding rites. And here it is, um, under D, starting at paragraph nine. If you have any doubt about what I said about making announcements, it's here that the announcements are under the concluding rites. And with all due respect, well-intentioned priests are putting it in the communion rite. And the reason is because they feel people are sitting down, so then we'll make the announcements, but so that's ridiculous. We've got to conclude the communion rite, and that prayer after communion is what does that. So when you hear a priest say, uh, before the concluding prayer, He's, it's not accurate because it's not the concluding prayer. Now that's the prayer after communion. And then we go into the concluding rites and it says here, brief announcements should be made if necessary. And that comes from an ancient tradition where the priest would say, you'll come back next week. We'll be here, join us. That's the tradition of the announcement. It was an invitation to come back, you know? Um, and then the priest reading and the blessing and then the dismissal. And I just, allow me to say one more thing. And then I promise I'll conclude in silence. Communion, when you read about the communion rite, I'm giving you all my pet peeves here. If somebody is not Catholic or is not receiving communion, they should not be taught or encouraged to come up in the communion procession like this for a blessing. Because the communion procession is not about a blessing. Okay. It's for those of us who are baptized and in the right disposition to come and receive the Lord. So, you know, we do it because we want everybody to feel special, but in five minutes, everybody's gonna have a blessing. At the end. Yeah. At the end. People need to know that. And we're almost saying, well, this blessing that somebody's going to get on the communion line, that's inappropriate, that, that the blessing at the end doesn't mean anything. Dr. Eschenauer? Yes. I see a lot of people coming up with their kids that can't huh? receive communion, that they're too young. And right. they're asking, when you, they come up for communion, please give the child a blessing. It shouldn't be done. I know. And I know that priests are put in an awkward position. Yeah. But it, it, some catechesis needs to be done here because not the place. They can ask, first of all, the child's going to have the blessing at the end of Mass. If they want their child to have a special blessing, take them to the priest and have them give them a blessing, but not at the communion. The communion procession means far too much. And it's even more problematic if the people are coming up for that blessing with arms crossed before a deacon or a Eucharistic minister. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, uh, there's a lot of catechesis 
that needs to be done. That's why I want you to know this document and know what's appropriate. And then you take small, gentle, be a missionary disciple, missionary of mercy with people. But sometimes, you know, you, 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 you just, if you see too much of something, you might need to say to your pastor, could I talk to you about this? Could we look at this? Because we shouldn't be doing this. And you might have to do that sometimes. I mean, I look, it took me years to change First Communion in the parish where I worked because it was an abomination of the liturgy. I'm sorry, but it was. And I needed to fix it, but I had to do it slowly and gently. And then I wrote a book about it. Some people love the book and some people hate it. <laughs> but whatever, I stand by every word I wrote. Anyway, you guys are great, and I'm sorry for keeping you so late. But glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Keep the questions coming. Read the general instruction carefully, and um, you'll be the better for it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thanks. I'll see you all next week. Okay. Have a good night, Dr. Snow.